Well, greetings to you all from Adelaide, Australia. My name is Pastor Joshua Pfeiffer and I'm here today with Dr. John Kleinig for his presentation to the Lutheran Study Days, which has moved online this year. Dr. Kleinig's topic for this presentation is Worship in Scripture, the Delivery and Maintenance of a Good Conscience. So Dr. Kleinig, we're delighted to hear from you today. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Kleinig, as you would say, we'll start with big picture sort of stuff. Um, and so, what does a good conscience have to do with worship? Well, to put it quite simply, if we have a good conscience, we have a foretaste of heaven here on earth. Um, since we are pure in heart, we see God spiritually with the eyes of faith. Uh, as he discloses himself to us in the divine service. Just as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not just eventually in heaven, but already now here on earth. And so we want to hear you flesh out this connection today between worship and the good conscience. Um, so let's break it down now then and, and think a little bit more about the conscience in particular. What, what is the conscience? It's not something that's commonly spoken about today um, in our world, even in Christian circles necessarily. So what is the conscience and the good conscience? And um, I know you've got some helpful pictures to help lead us into this sometimes. Quite simply, our conscience is our inner voice that stands in judgment over us. It either approves or disapproves of what we do or of us as people. Is this right or wrong? Am I a good or bad person? And it's evident, even where it's not acknowledged, in the compulsive need that uh, people have to justify themselves and gain the approval of others. Uh, you say people don't talk much about it. Um, it doesn't mean it's not at work everywhere, but it's now commonly confused with self-esteem. Um, self-esteem, as you all know, means feeling good about yourself, even if um, uh, we have not been good people. So I feel good about myself. My definition, quite simply, is that when we are uh, with our conscience, in a Christian sense, we see ourselves as God sees us, not just as we see us or other people see us or as we would like to be, but as God sees us. And we have a good conscience in this way, and we see ourselves uh, as Jesus sees us when we see ourselves in the light of Jesus and his word. Um, there's two pictures of what it's like that I'd like to use and how it works for us. First of all, our conscience is a window. And secondly, uh, our conscience is a inner courtroom. First of all, it's like a window or a room with a window, uh, which is either clean or dirty. If a window is really dirty, like if glasses are really dirty, or if the glass in the window is stained, everything looks dirty. The window, things inside the room, 
things outside it. Because of the poor light or bad light or distorted light, we don't see things clearly. But if the window is clean and clear, we see things clearly. We see what's in the room and we see what lies outside the room. If on the other hand we have a bad conscience, we see everything in a bad light. It distorts how we see ourselves and others, how we see God and even the world around us. But if we have a good conscience, we have clear light and sharp sight. We see things as they are, we see ourselves and others, God and the world around us as they are in reality. That's what Paul teaches in Titus chapter 1.15, where he says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled, that's the polluted, and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciences are defiled. So it's like a window. It's also like a inner courthouse. Like every other person on earth, we stand on trial in God's court of law. And there are four parties to that trial, as in any proper criminal trial. There's God the judge, who considers the evidence, announces the verdict, and passes the sentence on us. Already now, in a hidden way, but finally in the last judgment. And then we have ourselves who are charged with transgression of God's law. And it's not a minor offence. We're guilty of rebellion against God, and that's a capital crime. We have a prosecutor who tries to prove that we are guilty so that we'll be condemned. And we have an advocate, a counsel for defence, who defends us in this trial. There's a secret, hidden rehearsal of this trial uh, in the conscience before it actually occurs in the Last Judgment. And Paul says in Romans that's happening all the time uh, uh, here on earth, whether we are aware of it or not. Uh, we uh, uh, know that we are guilty before God and are afraid of God's verdict on us because we are guilty and the sentence that will be passed on us when we face him as our judge in the last judgment. Um, apart from God's word, confusion reigns in our conscience in this trial because each of us acts as our own prosecutor, telling us of all the bad things, reminding us of all the bad things we've done and how rotten we are. And our, uh, then our conscience, in our conscience, we are our own defender, sticking up for ourselves. We're our own lawmaker. We shift the goalposts because um, that's one way we can uh, uh, prove to be innocent. And we're also our own judge. And worst of all, the devil messes with us 
by first accusing us of sin and then excusing us of the sins that we've committed by condemning us um, of sin against God and then turning around and trying to get to prove our innocence. Now, God's trial in our conscience works as it should when it proceeds according to God's word as law and gospel. That's very critical, those two things. Um, uh, if we admit uh, that we are guilty as charged before God in his law, uh, we can plead for mercy from him as he's promised us in his gospel. So his law shows us that we are guilty. The gospel tells us that we are pardoned, that we can claim mercy from God. Then there is the devil, who is our adversary, the one who prosecutes us. And he accuses us, uh, and rightly, he dredges up all our, the things that we've done in order to condemn us. Uh, and he uses God's law to condemn us. And then we have Jesus, who's our advocate, who pleads with God to pardon us. And he does this because he's taken the penalty of sin for us and he's died in our place. And then there's God, the Father, who is our one and only judge. He declares us guilty and pardons us because we are united with Jesus and share in his righteousness. And that declaration of God that we are guilty but pardoned gives us a clear conscience, a good conscience, a conscience free from guilt and shame. And we, best of all, we can be sure that God is pleased with us, just as pleased with us as he is with Jesus. When we have a good conscience, we know that when God looks at us, when God looks at me, he's pleased with me, he is as pleased with me as he is with Jesus. So in worship, to sum it up, in worship we stand before God the judge, already here and now in this life, as we gather together in order to receive a good conscience from him through his word. There's something so captivating about these pictures of the good conscience, and I think something that with which everyone will, will resonate, a yearning for exactly what you're describing. And you've begun then to draw that connection to, to worship as the tangible incarnate experience of, of this. And so um, worship and conscience, let's move over to the worship focus a bit more now. And perhaps you can begin, um, Dr. Kleinig, by giving us the, the overview of what the New Testament actually teaches us about worship. That's very hard to do, but I'll do it as simply as possible. Um, for me, the simplest explanation of what worship is and what happens in worship is given by Jesus himself. And we find it in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, verses 24, uh, 22, 24 to 27. It's Maundy Thursday. Jesus has just instituted Holy Communion, the Last Supper, and he's authorized his disciples to enact it. He says, do this. 
celebrate this, enact this in remembrance of me. And then there's a controversy between the disciples because uh, they argue, okay, we are going to be very important doing this work uh, that Jesus tells us to do. Now, who's going to be first? Who's the greatest among us? And Jesus tells them in that connection that the greatest is the one who serves everybody else, is not the host, but the one who uh, waits at the table. And it's in this connection, and we find this only in Luke's gospel, that Jesus adds, and I am among you as one who serves. Notice the present tense there. He doesn't just say, I will be among you, or I have been among you, but I am. And I am among you now, and I will be among you as one who serves, as one who waits on you and attends to you. Uh, so worship with its celebration of Holy Communion revolves around, it has to do with the presence of Jesus. It has to do with Jesus being there uh, to serve his disciples uh, uh, in this act. So uh, worship has to do with Jesus' service of us. Now, this flips things around because we normally think of worship as our service of God. We think about what we do. And that's not wrong. It's accurate. But that's only half of the story and the less important half of the story. Uh, the most important thing that the New Testament teaches us about worship, and the Old Testament too, for that matter, is that in worship, Jesus serves us. And that's why as we as Lutherans like to speak about worship as divine service. And there's a nice double meaning there. Divine service means God serves us and we serve God. Mm. Now that for me is just simply wonderful and illuminating. Mm. I remember you speaking before about the wrestling with language in this context and mm. just how hard it is in English in particular to, to find the word to encapsulate this worship so often gives this, this wrong impression and, and the recapturing of um, that language of the divine service is, is so significant, this theology you talk about. Yes, and the, the problem is that we um, take only one part of the picture mm. um, and that we usually take the less important part. Naturally, we think about ourselves and what it involves for us. And that's understandable. Um, but the most important part is not what we do, what we give to God, what we offer to him, but what he gives to us, what he offers to us. Mm. And so to encapsulate worship, you, you go to Maundy Thursday and the presence of Jesus among us as, as one who serves. Um, so how does Jesus do that then practically in, in the divine service? How does Jesus serve his disciples? Yeah, I want to stick with Luke's gospel again and uh, Luke's writings and look at two passages from what Luke writes. Um, and partly, I claim, think in, in elaboration of that basic claim of Jesus. The first story is found in later on in Luke chapter 24, verse 13 following, about the appearance of the risen Lord Jesus to two unnamed disciples. 
on Easter evening as they traveled from Jerusalem through to down to Emmaus, a little village outside there. Now, Luke's the only gospel writer who expands this. this. Uh, Mark mentions it in, his, in the appendix to his gospel, but Luke elaborates on this, and it's obviously very significant, not only for him, but for the early church. You remember that the Dudu disciples were walking along the road, and Jesus came and joined them, um, and they didn't recognize him as he traveled with them on the road. And then, wonderfully, he disclosed himself. He made himself known to them in two stages. Um, first of all, as they were traveling, he taught himself. He preached himself uh, from the Old Testament. So he explained why he had to suffer and die. But they don't realize that it's Jesus talking to them. Um, he opens their minds to understand how the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, apply to them, not just generally, but here and now with Jesus, uh, who's present with them. But they don't see him. They don't recognize him. Uh, then they come to Emmaus and they invite Jesus in as their guest. And then he does something strange. Even though he's the guest, he acts as if he is the host. He takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. Um, and at that moment, uh, uh, their eyes are open. They recognize that this is Jesus. Because that's the same thing he did just a few days earlier. Um, and that's what he used to do in the meals that he had with them. Um, so there's a nice irony here. When they see him physically, they don't recognize him. But when they recognize him, they don't see him. So um, worship, uh, then he disappears from their sight. Um, and you remember they are so excited, they rush back to Jerusalem and they tell the other disciples how Jesus appeared to them and made himself known to them. Um, by preaching himself from the Old Testament and by hosting the meal. Now, their story, Luke implies, and I think Luke intentionally doesn't name the disciples. Um, uh, Luke leaves them unnamed because their story is our story. It's the story of what happens every Sunday when the risen Lord Jesus appears to us. And he makes himself known to us in the divine service, in worship. There he preaches himself to us. And he, there he hosts Holy Communion, the Holy Supper for us. And in this way, he makes himself known to us. So that's, I think, probably the best story in the New Testament on... Um, uh, what happens in worship. Mm. Now, there's a second passage, which is a sort of a lead over to what I want to talk about subsequently. Um, uh, Luke begins, and it's from Luke again, but it's at the beginning of Acts. And Luke begins his introduction to the book of Acts, the story of the uh, early church, uh, 
in a very interesting way. He says in the first book of Theophilus, he's writing to Theophilus, a, a, probably a Roman official, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, on the one hand, this is a short summary of the content of the book uh, of Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel is about all that Jesus does and teaches uh, until his resurrection. But uh, Luke then says it's, it's not just Jesus did this, but he began. So what Jesus began to do and teach, he implies in this way that Jesus continues to do the same thing after Easter, after his ascension. He continues to act, to do, and he continues to teach. And he does it through his apostles, who are his ministers. Uh, he works through them and continues his ministry in word and deed. So uh, the Gospels, uh, Luke implies, uh, not only uh, are read and taught to, sh uh, to show us what Jesus said and did 2,000 years ago, but they are used in the divine service. They are read and they are preached on in the divine service to show what Jesus is doing and teaching us there and then. So Jesus began to do this and, and there's this implication of it continuing in the life of the church through his apostles and then subsequently through his other uh, chosen spokes, uh, spokesmen. Uh, so how does this happen, Dr. Kleinick? How does um, the Lord Jesus involve his disciples in this ongoing ministry in the life of the church? Yes, and I want to connect, uh, not only talk about how Jesus involves um, his disciples in his ministry, but then uh, what this has to do with a good conscience yeah. now. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the link between uh, the two parts of the topic. And the best summary that we have of this is in John's Gospel. Um, it's this summary that we find in John chapter 20, verse 19 to 23. It's the story of the appearance of Jesus to the ten apostles. Judas isn't there, Thomas isn't there. So it's the ten of them on Easter evening. They are locked up. They're afraid of being persecuted and ridiculed. Very relevant for the theme of this, uh, on these online talks, locked up but free. Locked up but free. Mm. Well, they are locked up initially, and then what Jesus comes is unlocks them. Uh, not just physically, but just listen to the way John very carefully, St. John the Apostle, very carefully tells this story. It's obviously very important to him, and it obviously was very important to people in the early church. John says, on the evening of that day, that's Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace 
be with you. And when he had said them, had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now this is just simply wonderful. And it is packed full of very important, significant things. Now I want to focus on what particularly touches on, uh, uh, has to do with our topic. Um, you have this uh, 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 situation. They are, locked, uh, they are locked up in this room. It's probably the upper room where they uh, celebrated Holy Communion with Jesus. And they locked themselves up. And it's interesting. Um, they aren't locked up by some external fault, but fear. And the fear of what will happen to them imprisons them in this room. And Jesus appears to them. Um, they're locked up in fear. They're locked up probably with shame and guilt. They think of uh, how they failed Jesus and so on. You can speculate a great deal. But it's fear that imprisons them. And this is the backdrop. And then Jesus appears and stands in their midst. He's among them once again. And he um, uh, uh, repeats himself. He says, peace be with you, two times. Now, if Jesus uh, repeats himself, it means it's very, very significant. Um, he gives them his peace. Now, uh, in all the Gospels, Jesus only says this very common uh, Semitic Jewish greeting after his resurrection. He doesn't say it before his resurrection. So the risen Lord Jesus comes and gives them peace. And he gives them peace for two different reasons, for two different purposes. He gives them peace in their conscience. He forgives them their sins. He reinstates them. So he gives them the peace that comes from a good conscience. And then he gives them peace, uh, his peace, for them to then be peacemakers, to bring his peace to others. So Jesus sums up his whole ministry and their involvement in his ministry in the picture of making peace bringing peace to people who are afraid and, bring, and then commissioning them to bring his peace to other people who are afraid. And they're afraid uh, for all sorts of reasons. Just as in the present time, um, a whole globe, the whole earth is, uh, uh, people all around the world are afraid of the, uh, uh, what's happening to them with the COVID pan epidemic. So he gives them his peace twice. And then he commissions them uh, for their work. 
And it's interesting, he doesn't commission them to work by themselves, which is true. He doesn't just commission them to work together with him, which is even more true, but he commissions them to do the Father's work. Now just, just, just put your mind around that. Jesus has come to do the Father's work, and now he involves these ten disciples in doing the Father's work. They work, they don't just work for God, but they work together with Jesus. And by working together with Jesus, they work together with God the Father. Um, and then he breathes on them and uh, gives them his Holy Spirit. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, he gives them this Holy Spirit uh, to empower them to work together with him as peacemakers. Now, if I told you that you had to do God's work, that would be hardly be good news to you. I mean, to be honest with you, I find it hard to cope. To do all the things that I should do as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a friend, uh, as a pastor, all those things which are my work. Now, God comes and says, okay, you're, you're finding that hard to do. Well, what you need to have is some more work to do. And you've got to work, do my work as well. Uh, hardly good news. And yet Jesus does, uh, God doesn't, and Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives his disciples God, the Holy Spirit from the Father. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And by giving them the Spirit, he gives them the power to do the Father's work here on earth. He empowers them. He authorizes them. He enables them to do it. And so to do that, they can call on the Holy Spirit. And they work with the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he gives them all one single task. It's not a new task. It's what he's been doing. And it's not as if he gives this disciple that thing to do or this disciple that thing to do. He gives them all one single work to do. They are to grant, to give God's pardon, the Father's pardon for sins, or to withhold the pardon. So they are to forgive sins or withhold sins, uh, withhold forgiveness from sinners. Now, once again, this is impossible. Human beings forgiving sin, only God can do that. Um, but uh, God uh, calls the apostles and their successors, pastors and teachers, to do that together with him and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that happens through every pastor, every Sunday in the divine service. There they uh, work together with Jesus and with God the Father. They work with the Holy Spirit uh, in their ministry. So notice here how worship and the ministry 
the work of a pastor and pastors in a worship has to do with all three persons of the triune God. It has to do with doing the Father's work. It has to do with doing this together with Jesus. It has to do with uh, the Father's work, his work of bringing peace on earth uh, 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 by the power of the Holy Spirit. It has to do with all three persons who are equally active in it. And I've always appreciated that Trinitarian emphasis that you've brought to, to all of these themes in your, your teaching, John. It's something that's um, lacking across the um, Christian spectrum in yes. different ways, of course. Yes, yes, yes. And it's uh, uh, so practical and useful mm. um, uh, because it, 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 it touches on all the important things for us. Um, and so and that's why we begin the service in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, because God the Father is present and active, God the Son is present and active, God the Holy Spirit is present and active. And all three together combine to serve us. And we then are commissioned to work together um, with the triune God uh, in the world. And this is done um, and we see it happening most clearly in the divine service. Um, we have an explanation of uh, how this happens, this forgiveness of sins, the withholding forgiveness, uh, the pardoning of sin and the uh, retention of sin happens in two passages in Matthew. The first is in Matthew 16 verse 19 where Jesus says this to Peter as the representative of all the apostles. You remember the uh, situation is that Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and uh, Jesus has commended him for that. And then he goes, Jesus goes on to add, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now here we have two vivid pictures that Jesus uses to explain uh, what it is that pastors do together with Jesus in the divine service every Sunday. Two simple, vivid pictures. The first one is the simple of the two, and it's often overlooked. Um, Jesus gives them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom. Um, uh, the picture here is of somebody who has the keys to the palace of the king. Um, the king is God the Father. He is the one who reigns in heaven. Uh, and the one who has the keys that unlock the door to heaven or close, uh, who closed the door to heaven is Jesus. Jesus has these keys. They belong to him. Now, the keys, as I said, are the keys to the Father's presence. They are the keys to the King's presence and the kingdom of heaven. Um, so we become part of the kingdom and we work together with the king um, uh, by having this door unlocked for us. It's the door, quite simply, from earth into heaven. So if you have the simple picture, you have earth, you have heaven, 
and uh, there's a door that leads from earth to heaven and uh, there are keys that unlock this door. Um, the, this is what Jesus gives to his disciples, the, the keys. Uh, they really belong to Jesus. They don't belong to any human being. And the risen Lord Jesus, as uh, we saw in John's Gospel, is the one who is, forgives sins. He alone can uh, uh, judge sinners and pardon sinners. But we are then share the keys. Jesus doesn't give up the keys, but he shares them with us so that together with Jesus, we either open the door or shut the door. We exclude people from the Father's presence or most wonderfully, we admit people to the Father's presence already here and now in the divine service. There we give access to heaven for people on earth. Um, that's the one picture. The other picture is of binding and loosing. Um, this is a bit more difficult to get your head around. And it's best if you stick with the picture rather than explanations of the picture. Uh, Jesus gives his 12 apostles the power to bind people who've sinned and to loose people uh, who have been bound by sin. Um, so uh, there's... The picture here is of being in prison or being free from prison, which um, a picture which has governed the study days um, of which this talk is part. Um, the apostles and pastors after the apostles chain people in the prison of sin um, with the chains of a guilty conscience. Um, if... Uh, people don't repent of their sins, then uh, they remain chained, locked up, bound in sin. But they also release sinners from that present prison um, by forgiving them. And they release people from that prison, the prison of a guilty conscience, um, uh, for life with God as members of his royal household and workers together with him in his heavenly kingdom here on earth. So they are not just released from the prison of sin, but they are brought into the house of the king um, where they work together with the heavenly king. They do his kingdom work. They are his bureaucrats, his civil servants, as it were. Now, the Jewish rabbis use these terms uh, for the way they applied God's law in their teaching. So Jesus is picking up a picture that was used very, very commonly in his day, and they were used by the rabbis, the teachers of the Old Testament. Um, now, the rabbis used this picture um, to explain their teaching in two ways. Uh, by their teaching, they bound people. They obligated people um, to do something by judging something um, as uh, uh, commanded by God. Um, and they loose people by judging something as permitted by God. So uh, 
Uh, no. Is it right to kill? Okay, God's law says uh, thou shalt not kill. So you are bound by that teaching. Um, now, as for um, uh, drinking wine, uh, God's law doesn't prohibit it. Uh, so therefore people are, are not bound mm. by that law. However, um, the priests, when they were on service at the temple, were not allowed to drink wine. Uh, they were bound. Um, as long as they were uh, on duty at the temple. But when they went home, they could have some wine or beer. Um, they were not bound by that law. So mm. it has, it's a law term, binding, loosing. What's permitted and what, what is uh, uh, commanded in God's law. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses these common terms in a new way for teaching God's word as law and gospel. The, the, by teaching the law, he binds people and binds their conscience. They're held accountable before God. Um, uh, Jesus uses God's law to accuse sinners and to judge their sin. Uh, and you can see Jesus doing that in an eminent way in the Sermon on the Mount. But he uses the gospel, God's word as gospel, the promises of the gospel, uh, to pardon and justify sinners. So uh, binding with the law, loosing with the gospel. Um, that's central to Luther's teaching. That's central to our Lutheran understanding of theology and our Christian life. And it's also central to our understanding of what happens in worship. Um, now, these two acts are closely connected. They're two sides of the same coin. Jesus binds my conscience by um, accusing me of sin. He, but he binds my conscience to loose and to free it from the chains of sin. So he uh, accuses me of sin uh, in order to bring me to repentance so that I can be freed from a guilty conscience. Um, so, so Jesus uh, judges sin with his law, God's law, in order to forgive sinners. So instead of uh, condemning sinners, he condemns sin. Um, uh, so that's what uh, he does when he binds and looses. And that's what he calls his 12 apostles and every pastor, every uh, uh, preacher to do in the divine service. Now, um, may you remember that Jesus says, whatever you do on earth will be done in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be done bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, um, uh, he's not saying, first you do it on earth, and then it's done in heaven by God, or first God does it in heaven, and then you do it on earth. They, and this is amazing, they happen simultaneously. God binds himself to the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of every pastor. So that um, uh, as they bind, God binds. As they loose 
as they free people, as they release people from the chains of a guilty conscience, God does it. Um, not two separate acts, but one and the same thing. They happen simultaneously. Um, and this, for me, is something that I, I find always astonishing and can, can't get my head around because it's just so wonderful. And it, it uh, um, fills me with the greatest responsibility um, uh, that I have as a pastor and also the most wonderful work as pastor. To see that happening has been the greatest joy and is the greatest joy in my ministry. So uh, the keys are enacted, if you like, by the pastor communally in the congregation in the divine service. So it's there that the pastor uh, binds or looses sins for the whole congregation. But it, pastors also do that personally in their pastoral care and particularly in private confession and absolution. So for us as Lutherans, the office of ministry is the office of the keys. Um, uh, that's emphasised in our confessions. But also for us as Lutherans, and this has also been forgotten, I think, by many Lutherans in modern times, uh, uh, that uh, worship has to do with the exercise of the keys. Um, Everything that happens in the divine service in some way has to do with binding and loosing, uh, uh, holding people to account for their sins, but also freeing people from their sins. Um, uh, uh, the, and uh, doing that and uh, unfolding the implications of that. Um, the second passage where this is explained further is in Matthew 18, verse 18 to 20, where Jesus says this to his disciples. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Exactly the same words as he said to Peter. But then he adds two other things. He says, again, I say to you, if you two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, anything you pray for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I amongst them, in the middle of them. Now, here Jesus repeats what he had said earlier to Peter uh, with a solemn oath. Um, that this is God's truth. He says, Amen, I say to you. Um, this is not just the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but this is God's truth. It is reliable truth. Uh, and he adds two things to the, uh, what he'd said previously. Uh, the proper use of the keys by pastors depends on the, con the prayer of the congregation and the presence of Jesus. So how come... A pastor can forgive sins or hold people to account for their sins, judge sins. It's because, number one, um, uh, uh, they can pray. Not just they, but the whole congregation prays for this to happen. And if the congregation agrees on what is prayed for, it will happen. Um, and 
It all happens secondarily because Jesus is present with them. So wherever God the Father gathers the congregation together in the name of Jesus, Jesus is present um, with his keys to bind and loose. But he's also present leading the congregation in its prayers. So uh, you see now how the keys and worship come together here. Because uh, um, if you want to know what worship, what happens in worship, one of the simplest passages in the New Testament is this promise of Jesus where he says, where two or three are gathered together. Notice the passive there. It's not where they gather together, but where God the Father gathers them together. Uh, uh, there Jesus is present with them. So there in the divine service, Jesus works through the pastor uh, to forgive people and open the door to heaven for them. So what's the purpose of worship? And what does worship have to do with a good conscience? Well, in worship, we have access to the Father's presence by receiving a good conscience. Because we are there uh, given a good conscience, we have access to the Father's presence. The door to heaven lies open before us and we can um, enter the Father's presence and we can pray together with Jesus for whatever we need and whatever other people need from God. Dr. Pine, if you let, let us so uh, deeply into this, this beautiful theology and the imagery that Jesus gives us here to, to meditate on this and and you've talked about how this happens in worship, in the divine service, through, through pastors. Um, but perhaps you can go more specifically now, how do pastors actually do this in the divine service? What, you, know, you talked about how the whole service is in one way or another oriented yeah. towards this end. Yes. But really specific and concrete, how, do, how does this actually happen in worship? Well, um, uh, it happens when pastors baptise people or withhold baptism. Uh, I, as a pastor, don't baptise everybody, only some people. So I uh, exercise the keys by baptising people or deciding not to baptise people. Uh, uh, so uh, this happens in baptism. And that's why uh, we begin the divine service, usually as Lutherans, with the, what we call the invocation, in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, which reminds us of baptism and reminds us that because we are baptised, uh, uh, Jesus has used the keys to open up the door to heaven for us. And so that's the starting point of the divine service. But it happens in baptism. And then uh, very often Lutheran services of communion begin, and most services have this, um, uh, begin with confession and absolution. So pastors exercise the keys when they forgive uh, repentant sinners and warn impenitent sinners uh, that they are under God's judgment. So uh, at the beginning of the service, we have confession and absolution. And the important thing here is the way these two interact. Uh, only those who confess their sins, seek forgiveness, receive uh, the absolution. Absolution means the freeing, the loosing 
from the prison of sin. We are freed from a bad conscience. And so since we have a good conscience, we can now enter God's presence. And then as people who have come into God's presence, the pastors then teach us God's word as law and gospel. Um, so there's two sides. Um, now, the, this, is, this is the central, um, central to the Lutheran understanding of theology and central to Lutheran understanding of worship. In worship, uh, 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 God's word as law and gospel is proclaimed to people. Um, so uh, preaching is uh, a, the way in which pastors either free people from a bad conscience, or they hold people to account for their sins. Now, wherever God's word is proclaimed, the devil also is at work. And he um, uh, preaches in the conscience of people. He uh, misapplies law and gospel to people in their conscience. He uses God's law to condemn people who have been forgiven. Um, uh, so God's law was never meant to condemn people, it was to uh, accuse them and to bring them to repentance. The devil not only uses God's law uh, to accuse, but also to condemn people. He misapplies the law, but he also misapplies the gospel. He says, oh, okay, Jesus died for everybody, everybody's forgiving, forgiven, it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, uh, it's God's business to forgive you. Uh, so uh, preaching has to do with the exercise, the operation of the keys. Now we could spend hours on that, as you know, uh, and that's hard to do. Most obviously, pastors admit, uh, exercise the keys by admitting people to the Lord's table in Holy Communion, but they also then uh, exercise the binding keys when they exclude people from Holy Communion. They exercise the keys when they bless people with heavenly blessings, the blessings of the Holy Spirit, uh, spiritual blessings, or they withhold uh, that kind of blessing from them. Um, so the, all the main parts of the divine service and what pastors do in the divine service has to do with the exercise of the keys, the use of the keys, either to bind or to loose. And all that happens so that uh, people who have been forgiven, people whose consciences have been freed from sin, um, can serve God with a good conscience in the divine service, but not only there, but then out in their daily lives. They are, are free people and they are sent out as free people. Uh, people with a good, clear conscience. And that, I put to you, is the best gift that we can have this side of eternity. Hmm. And so you said there about this, this reception of a good conscience in order to, to serve God and to live in our vocation. Can you talk a bit more about that? How does that work? What, Another way of saying it would be, what's the function of this, this good conscience for the people of God that they receive? Uh, yes, because it has to do with um, 
their uh, uh, daily life. Uh, because I needn't, because God forgives me, because God accepts me, because God approves of me, uh, if you like, I can feel good about myself. I don't have to justify myself. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to gain people's approval. Um, um, as we so often do. You know, most of people's motivation is to get other people to like them. Just think of Facebook, um, you know, the likes there. Uh, we do everything in order, uh, because we have a bad conscience, and in order to feel good about ourselves. Um, so, uh, but if we then are freed from that burden, we are able to, uh, uh, we're free to act in love towards other people, not for our benefit, uh, but for their benefit. We see ourselves as forgiven sinners, so we can't stand in judgment over other people. We see ourselves as forgiven, uh, uh, so we are free then to uh, serve God and uh, other people in our station and vocation, wherever God plays us and places us and whatever he calls us to do. Um, if you like, uh, we have clear sight. We see things the way they are. We don't, aren't overly optimistic. We aren't overly pessimistic. We are spiritually realistic about ourselves and other people. Uh, and we are freed then as uh, the people of God, as uh, representatives of the heavenly king and as uh, those who are in Jesus to do the work that God gives us to do and not to worry about results because they're in God's hands, not to worry about whether people approve or disapprove of us. God, we have God's approval and that's what matters. And also what's more important then in practical terms uh, we needn't be obsessed about getting things right. Um, uh, very often Christians uh, cripple themselves because they're so uh, conscientious or anxious about doing the ro wrong thing that they end up doing nothing. Uh, we can be bold and daring in what we do because we know uh, that we have been forgiven and that uh, we live by grace rather than by uh, being judged on the basis of our performance and our achievements. Um, and that then uh, uh, helps us to live as free people in a world where most people are crippled by low self-esteem and by feeling bad about themselves. And within the worship service itself, um, Dr. Kleinig, I imagine that part of the function of this good conscience is the enabling of us in in our confidence of drawing drawing near to, to God. Yes, and uh, uh, I'd like to uh, pick up uh, the way this is explained and taught in the letter to the Hebrews. Um, now, just before I uh, uh, lead into that, uh, we need to be aware that the devil is always at work in our conscience. And um, he will do his level best to stop people coming to church. And the way he does that preeminently is by um, uh, uh, accusing them and condemning them of their sins. 
And so uh, uh, as soon as somebody steps into church and uh, uh, begins to be involved in the divine service, the devil gets on that person's back. And it doesn't matter whether they are a young Christian or a mature Christian. It happens all the time. And he will dig up everything and it will give them a bad conscience uh, uh, to make them feel uncomfortable in God's presence uh, and to, so that they switch off, so that they don't hear what God is actually saying, so that they don't see what God is doing in the hope that they can drive that person away from the congregation and congregational worship um, so that the devil can have them to themselves and uh, chip away at their faith. Um, so to counteract the work of the devil, uh, uh, we have uh, the work of Jesus and God the Father, and particularly Jesus as our high priest, to uh, deliver a good conscience to us, and not only deliver it, but to maintain it and to refresh it and to bring us back to Jesus, away from ourselves, and to bring us to Jesus and um, the work of Jesus in bringing the Father to us and us to the Father. Um, what's the connection then between good conscience and service of worship? In Hebrews 9 verse 14, um, uh, uh, we are told that the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Um, dead works, works that lead to death, that achieve nothing. Uh, to, 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 uh, uh, so we are freed from dead works so that we can serve the living God. If we have a clear conscience, and only if we have a clear conscience, then we can truly serve God in the divine service. Now the word for serve here in Hebrews is the word for uh, worship. So we can worship God with a clear conscience. Now, um, we have a further explanation of that in the next chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 19 to 20. It's a very complicated passage, which is full of many pictures. And I'll do my best to pick out and explain the most important dimensions of this. There we read, Therefore, my brothers, my sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, notice the blood of Jesus again, by the new and living way that he has opened up for us through the curtain, that is, the way of his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, the family of God, the temple of God, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from a bad conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now the main point here is that we draw near to God the Father in heaven uh, in the divine service. We draw near, we approach, we come to that place um, and we have the confidence to approach um, God the Father, not just here on earth, but in heaven itself, in the, his holy places, in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, uh, 
That word for confidence has two sides to it. Uh, it combines two kinds of freedom. Uh, the freedom that we have to speak to God. You see, when you are guilty, when you are afraid, you become tongue-tied. Uh, and uh, uh, our guilt uh, 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 make, renders us dumb in God's presence. Um, so it involves freedom of speech, but it also has the idea of free access to a person. Now, there are very few people who have free access to me, who have that kind of confidence. My wife can say whatever she wants to say. Maybe. <laughs> uh, my, a few friends and my children. But strictly speaking, we don't have that kind of confidence with anybody here on earth. The freedom, uh, which is unrestricted access, uh, uh, access to say um, whatever uh, we like to say. We have freedom of speech. Now, that kind of confidence, the freedom to, if you like, uh, to ask God for whatever we want, um, uh, comes from our open access to God through Jesus. Spoke about the open door that's unlocked, uh, uh, which leads to the open away into the Father's presence. Now, I had a policy when I was uh, teaching at the seminary to have an open door. And this signaled to uh, students that I was available, accessible to them, and they could come to discuss anything they liked with me. Um, so we have that kind of uh, access to God the Father, which gives us confidence then to approach him no matter what. Now in this passage we have a contrast between worship in the Old Testament and worship in the New Testament. The Israelites in the Old Testament had limited accents access to God's presence at the tabernacle and temple here on earth. It was limited, it was restricted. Uh, in the new covenant, we have an open door, an open way, open access to God the Father, not just here on earth, but in heaven itself. It is in his heavenly places, the heavenly sanctuary, through Jesus. As our high priest, we have access to the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus brings us together with himself into the Father's presence. So he backs us. He ushers us there. And we therefore can, what's more, we can approach God's presence in our Holy Communion through the flesh of Jesus. And that flesh is our new and living way um, uh, into his presence. The only person who had access to God's presence in the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant was the high priest. And that only once a year. The high priest could go through the curtain into God's presence, uh, the throne of God, the throne of grace, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he, had, he did that carrying the blood of the sacrifices that had been um, uh, uh, offered for him. 
Well, we have a open way. There's no curtain between us and God. And we have the way that we come from earth to heaven is through the flesh of Jesus. And we are qualified for this by having a good conscience. That's our qualification for entry. It's our ticket of entry, if you like, uh, uh, into the Father's presence. And we receive a good conscience in the divine service in three ways. Uh, 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 we, our bodies have been washed with the pure waters of baptism so that we are clean from the stain of sin. Our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus that makes and keeps us clean and holy. Uh, here the writer of the Hebrews recalls what happened in the Old Testament when priests were ordained, they were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifices that were offered at their ordination. Uh, they had their bodies sprinkled with blood, which, and that uh, made them physically clean and holy before God. Well, in Holy Communion, Jesus sprinkles our heart, our conscience, with his own blood. Uh, and in that way, he shares his purity, his holiness with us. So how clean are we? We're as clean as Jesus. How holy are we? As holy as Jesus. And we can therefore um, uh, boldly approach God the Father because he sees us covered with uh, the blood of Jesus. And if the blood sprinkles our conscience, it means that the whole of us, body, soul and spirit, is clean and holy in God's sight. And thirdly, uh, we have faith. And it's our faith in Jesus as our high priest uh, 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 that, we, that enables us to come into the Father's presence because we can be sure of a favourable reception from God the Father. We needn't be scared of what God will say or do. We know what he will say or do. And uh, Jesus backs us up as our high priest in this. So our faith is in Jesus as our high priest. And then lastly, this passage tells us that the purpose of a good conscience is that we can come near to God the Father in heaven, to the holy heavenly place. Uh, uh, we can come near with a true heart, a good conscience, in the full assurance of faith. That's what we receive through a good conscience, is the full assurance of faith. The assurance of our reception by God, the assurance of God's approval of us. Uh, so through Jesus as a high priest, we enter God's presence with boldness and confidence. We have open access. We have free access to heaven here on earth. Now, that's just simply astonishing. Um, and it's something that we need to proclaim out aloud. Uh, uh, it's just too good to be true. It's something that I just can't get my mind or imagination around. Uh, and it's the most wonderful part of uh, uh, 
our Christian understanding of worship. That in the divine service, in worship, we have confident, assured access to the Father's presence and grace and blessing here on earth. Um, uh, we have access to all heavenly blessings for our life here on earth. And then we, in turn then, through the blood of Jesus, are consecrated as priests so that we can um, uh, bring heavenly blessings, the ble heavenly blessings that we receive from God in worship, we then can distribute to people on earth. That's our service. So, if you like, we live in two worlds, one foot in on earth, the other foot in heaven, and we straddle those two. And we do that only because we're united with Jesus. Jesus links heaven and earth together with us. And we can see that uh, uh, most clearly then in worship. And we have a, a picture then of what happens in worship uh, later on in Hebrews chapter 12, um, 22 to 24. There we have seven things that we have as gifts from God uh, when we approach him with a good conscience in worship. Seven things, seven invisible things. Now listen for those seven things as I read Hebrews 12, 22 following. You have come, you have drawn near, you have approached, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of uh, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood for sprinkling that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Those seven things that are ours, that we have access to. And the order is significant, um, and most surprising is that it doesn't end as I would expect with that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, but we have come to the blood for sprinkling. Let me just unpack that very briefly and all too briefly. Um, uh, so we have seven invisible gifts uh, that we receive every time we gather for worship. First of all, we have access to heavenly Jerusalem. Now, earthly Jerusalem was the place where the temple was, Mount Zion. There, God dwelt with his people on earth. It, there, heaven and earth overlapped. Well, we come to a place, heavenly Jerusalem, uh, a location which is both on earth and in heaven. Uh, and so the architecture of our churches uh, um, uh, shows us that we are both on earth and yet here heaven comes down to earth. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we ha uh, have access to and are surrounded by the holy angels who join us 
and assist us in praising God. They are in festival assembly. Thirdly, we are connected with the worldwide church. So when we gather for worship, we are not only there together with the other members that we can see around us, but we worship together with all Christians all around the world, um, invisibly. So there's no such thing as a small congregation. And that's worth remembering in these days in which we have uh, smaller congregations due to the restrictions of COVID um, epidemic. And then number uh, four, the center of that seven, we come into the presence of God who's judge of all. But he's a judge with a difference. He doesn't judge us in order to condemn us, but he judges us to pardon us, to justify us, to approve of us, to vindicate us. He is a judge who justifies us. That's the centre. Then number five, uh, we come to the presence of the righteous made perfect. That's all the saints who've gone before us. Um, uh, uh, people who the saints in the Old Testament and New Testament uh, and uh, Christians who've lived um, for the whole of history. So uh, we worship, we come into God's presence, and there we are connected through Jesus and his blood with the people who've gone before us. Um, then um, uh, number six, we come to the presence of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus who mediates the new covenant the covenant of forgiveness to us in Holy Communion. Now, as I said before, I'd expect the list to stop there. But then there's number seven. We come to the blood for sprinkling. That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember Abel's blood cried for vengeance. But the blood of Jesus cries for our justification, for God to pardon us. It cries for mercy. And it speaks that better word to us in Holy Communion when we hear Jesus say, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for what? For the forgiveness of sins. It's the blood that speaks forgiveness. It's the blood that sprinkles our conscience so that we are clean and holy in God's sight. It's the blood that consecrates us as priests together with Jesus. Now, why does it come last? Why not first? Well, we have access to those other six things only through the blood of Jesus. The blood is of Jesus, links us to the risen Lord Jesus, links us to the saints who've gone before us. The blood of Jesus means that we can face God the judge and be assured of his pardon. Uh, the blood of Jesus connects us with all true Christians around the world, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It links us with the angels and gives us the same status, holy status, as the angels in God's presence. And it's the blood of Jesus that gives us access to heaven here on earth. Um, that is simply just too amazing and wonderful um, to contemplate.
Well, Dr. Kalani, you've led us so wonderfully through um, this topic today of worship um, in Scripture and the delivery and, and maintenance of a good conscience. So perhaps as we wrap up um, now, any, any final words or, or words of summary again um, as to what a good conscience has to do with worship? Well, um, the, uh, we can see what it has to do with worship by the architecture of our churches. Um, wherever I've gone around the world, Lutheran churches are characterized by a center aisle that leads through the nave, which is the ship, the place where people gather, uh, uh, directly to the altar. Uh, the altar represents God's presence. Uh, it's the meeting point between heaven and earth. So there's two, if you like, movements in worship. Um, there's God's coming down from heaven to earth. He meets us at the altar, at the lectern and at the uh, pulpit, but also at the font. So he comes down to meet us. And the result of his meeting with us uh, in Holy Communion, in preaching, in the scriptures and in baptism is to give us a good conscience, and he does that by giving us an open way into his presence. So the architecture of our churches preaches um, the connection between worship and a good conscience. Um, uh, it tells us in architectural terms that uh, when we have a good conscience, we have a foretaste of heaven here on earth. Uh, we're not fully there. We're still here in this world, but we approach heaven. We come close to heaven. We draw near to God here on earth in anticipation of our final entry into heaven. So to summarize everything I'll be saying, why do I go to church? Quite simply, I go to church every Sunday because I need a good conscience. I go to church to receive a good conscience again and again and again so that I can live without fear. Uh, I can live with myself, I can live with God and I can live with other people with a good conscience. From another point of view, um, I'm a pastor. Now, what do I aim to do every time I lead worship? Uh, quite simply, uh, in the simplest terms, my aim is to give people a good conscience. My aim is that whatever I do and whatever is done under my leadership, under my ministry, helps to deliver a good conscience to people here on earth. Uh, so question that I ask myself whenever I've prepared a sermon is, does this give people a good conscience? Does it address the conscience? And does it address the conscience in law and gospel in such a way that it doesn't evade evil and the question of sin? It deals with it honestly, accurately and helpfully, but it doesn't stop there. It actually gives a good conscience through the proclamation of the gospel. So does the sermon 
open the door into heaven by giving a good conscience. Well, thank you again um, today, Dr. Kleinig, for um, unpacking the scriptures for us to help us meditate on all of this wonderful imagery um, that Jesus and his apostles give us. And thank you that um, in this year when many of us have experienced um, various kinds of, of lockdowns, that you've reminded us so wonderfully of the freedom that we have through this gift of good conscience, especially in the divine service. Um, God bless you and God's richest blessings to all of you wherever you're watching and listening around the world. And um, thank you again, Dr. Kleinig. Yes, thank you very much, Josh. Thank you.